Support for My Fellow Kansans was provided by the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund, working to improve the health and wholeness of Kansans since 1986 through funding innovative ideas and sparking conversations in the health community. Learn more at healthfund.org. If you've heard of Tiny Greensburg, Kansas before, it's probably because of the massive twister that leveled the town a dozen years ago. And maybe because of the attention paid to its green rebirth, its attempt to transform itself from just another struggling, withering community on the high plains into one ready to buck the forces that have been driving people, jobs, and money out of rural Kansas for generations. By going it green, by being a sustainable community, we're looking for green-collar jobs. We're looking for something that sets us away from everybody else. In the days after the tornado, people streamed into Greensburg to see if they could help. They often landed at Scott Brown's auction company, located just outside the tornado's path on the edge of town. My office that we're sitting in right now was actually the only building that was still usable for public meetings or for gatherings or whatever that was left standing. Developers from Wichita, Kansas City, even Denver, showed up to talk about rebuilding Greensburg's downtown. And they'd say, hey, we want to help Greensburg. This is terrible. We've never seen nothing like it. And if you're going to rebuild, we want to help. And I'd say, fine, that's good. We need all the help we can get. But when, as Brown says, the discussions got down to the nitty-gritty, the numbers didn't pencil out. To make any money, the developers said they'd need to charge businesses five times the rent they were paying before the tornado. These people, and they were good people, and they really wanted to help Greensburg, but when it got down to the dollars and cents, it didn't make sense for them to do it. So did they then just walk away? Pretty much just said, well, we'll get back in touch. And they didn't get back in touch. They'd go back and talk to their partners, and, and it was dead. That, in microcosm, is the story of rural Kansas. Even with a makeover and a lot of help from outsiders, some places may prove just too remote to easily salvage. So I went back to Greensburg to find out whether its transformation into the state's most energy-efficient and environmentally friendly community had worked out, had set it apart from other rural towns struggling to attract the jobs and people they need to survive and prosper. I'm Jim McLean, and this is My Fellow Kansans, a podcast from the Kansas News Service. Let's go back to our wind part, the Doppler part of our neighborhood Stormcaster. And here again, you can see that circulation. It's May 4th, 2007. Wichita meteorologist Dave Freeman is doing what he does on many spring and summer evenings, tracking storms for TV viewers in western Kansas. And the track continues to be kind of straight to the north. So if you're in that Greensburg area, we urge you to, again, move to shelter and get in But there's in your something different about this storm, something ominous. It's spawned a tornado more than a mile wide, and it's headed right at Greensburg. At the time, a town of about 1,500, some 100 miles west of Wichita. Boy, I sure hate to tell you this, friends, but it looks like that thing is right on top of Greensburg. So your time is up. You need to be in your shelter right now. Packing winds of more than 200 miles per hour, the twister killed 11 people and reduced the town to rubble. May 5th, 2007. The sun brings to light the incomprehensible scope of destruction in Greensburg, Kansas. It is a nightmarish landscape. The town is leveled. Greensburg's great tragedy 
also seemed to offer the rarest of opportunities, a chance at a makeover for the 21st century, a shot at survival. For a while, the town's comeback story captured the nation's imagination. Actor and environmental activist Leonardo DiCaprio produced a television series about it. We're doing things in this community that most communities don't do in 20 years. 43% more energy efficient. Geothermal heating and cooling. This used to be Main Street. Biomass boilers. We know we have to take care of our planet. Wind turbine. Daylight and natural ventilation. Solar panels. Green is the smartest decision we've ever made. The series finale of Greensburg, a two-night special event. There was international interest, too. German Public Television produced this update on the town's comeback in 2010. The town of Greensburg, Kansas, is powered by wind energy. The price of electricity there is low. Maintaining supply is Mayor Bob Dixon's first priority. Our proximity to the Rocky Mountains and the weather systems that come over the top of the mountains and come in from the southwestern United States puts us in an optimal wind generation, some of the most sustainable winds in the world. The winds blowing around here three years ago were a lot less favorable. A monstrous tornado ripped through Greensburg and leveled everything in its path. The spotlight is now all but gone. The Caprio has moved on to other projects. And the 850 or so folks still left in Greensburg have, for the most part, settled back into their lives. Well, I'll tell you, today I've been out working in the garden and working in the yard. That's Bob Dixon, Greensburg's former mayor. You heard him talking about renewable energy in the German TV piece. What was the genesis of the idea of having Greensburg come back as, quote-unquote, the greenest community in America? I mean, what, what gave rise to that idea? The night after the tornado, and again, I was not there, but I've talked to numerous people that were in the basement of the courthouse because there was another tornado on the ground southwest of town in this massive storm system. And the governor's office was there. It was Kathleen Sebelius at the time. Uh, County commissioner, city manager, FEMA, state agencies, they were all there taking shelter. The discussion was, hey, we're going to build back. Well, why don't we do it green? We're Greensburg. How did it progress from there? Did it just gather momentum, or were there people in the community who needed to be convinced that this was the right way to go? The answer to that is both. The seed was planted and it grew. But Dixon says it took months, and one town meeting after the next to rally support for the plan. And just looking at the town today, you'd have to say it's been a smashing success. On a per capita basis, Greensburg is home to the most environmentally friendly buildings in the country. Its new high school rivals any in the state for technology. A domed museum now sits atop its main tourist draw, the world's largest hand-dug well. A glass-encased arts center and a corporate-funded business incubator both look like places you'd expect to see in Aspen, Taos, or Jackson Hole, not tiny, windswept Greensburg. But of course, appearances can be deceiving. Despite all it's accomplished, Greensburg, like most rural communities, struggles to attract people and jobs. Much to Bob Dixon's disappointment, the town's 72-acre industrial park sits empty, a monument to disappointment on the edge of town. We were under the impression that there would be opportunities to have businesses come here and start manufacturing or other kinds of businesses in the 
uh, green environmental area, mm -hmm. whatever that would entail. And we had companies that came and we followed up on them and made kind of all kinds of promises, but it just never panned out. Greensburg built it, but the businesses didn't come. Instead, something else happened. Not long after the tornado, Scott Brown, the guy who owned the auction company, was talking to his neighbors about how to rebuild downtown. Remember, Brown initially thought he could work with some out-of-town developers to get that done. But they vanished when there was no money to be made. That's what spurred me into action, I guess. I thought, how are we ever going to build this back? How are we ever going to? We held a community meeting. This was pretty early now. Uh, we had to bring bottled water in because the pipes weren't working and did at least have a roof over our head here. And we invited everybody that we could think that had a business before, before the tornado and the building filled up. And we talked, it just, it was friends talking to friends. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna rebuild? You know, they not only didn't have their business, they didn't have a home. If they had kids, they didn't have a place to send them to school. We didn't have a grocery store. You couldn't buy a gallon of milk. We took a poll and said, we just had a piece of paper up on a blackboard and says, if you think this is just not a commitment. It's just if you think, you're not committing because you don't know. But if you think you would want to rebuild in Greensburg, put your hand up and we'll put your name on the board. A dozen years later, Brown still gets emotional when he remembers that night when 63 of his friends and neighbors signed that sheet of paper. And 63 doesn't sound like a very big number to most communities. But I didn't even know there were 63 businesses in Greensburg before the tornado. But we had people that sheared the dogs, you know, that took care of the poodles, that had a business, and they put their hand up, and they were going to try to try to rebuild and do that. The co-op elevator, I was on the board of the elevator here in town. The board stood out in front of, a, in front of what was the office that was tore down to nothing and started again and voted out there on the sidewalk unanimously to rebuild it. 63 people signed that. I, I, now, they didn't commit, but they said, if it rebuilds, we want to be a part of it. We want to do it. Brown figured it would take at least a million dollars to build a kind of strip mall to replace what had been the communities downtown. He wanted to kick off a fundraising campaign by pledging the first $50,000 himself. But he needed to talk it over with his wife first. I said, this is what I'm going to do. Or this one, I, here, I want to run it by you and see what you think. We try to get the money raised from this community to rebuild our own community, our own money. We're going to have to find people that want to rebuild it that's not interested in getting a financial return. Their return is they've got a place to go in and get a hamburger. They've got a place to go in and, and, and get their hair fixed. They've got a place to, you know, to buy the basics. And that's going to be their return. And she said, well, how are you going to convince anybody to do that? And I said, I'm going, if, if you agree, I'll seed this. I'll put up 50000 myself. And I will try to get people to buy a share for $5,000 a share and see if I can raise a million bucks. 
we talked. It was more complicated than that. But she said, well, if you think you can do it, I'll go for it. So we did. A few people matched Brown's $50,000 contribution. Others gave 5000 some 10000 And when it opened in 2009, the downtown mall was fully paid for and fully occupied. To keep it that way, Brown says, the foundation's board of directors decided to lower the rent. And we got it paid for with commitments of $650 a month rent. And we decided that <laughs> the best thing we could do for the town was lower the rent. So we did. We lowered the rent to 450 bucks a month. And um, through the 10 years we've had up to now, we've had probably somewhere in the vicinity of a, probably 80 to 90 percent uh, occupancy that it stays full. Any money not needed to operate and maintain the building goes to other needs in the community, like subsidizing the movie theater that doubles as a performance space. Last month, we uh, brought a, a group from Branson up here called the Sons of Britches. And they put on a live performance, and we underwrote that in case it came up short. And we raised uh, uh, Kiowa County United, put that on, and hustled around to get the tickets sold, and, and yada, yada, yada. And uh, we made uh, enough money to pay all the expenses and give to the theater, who's struggling. They're struggling for money. Uh, we gave $10,700 to the theater. So we're still doing things. The job of keeping Greensburg's recovery going now belongs to Stacy Barnes. She's the city administrator. The daughter of former Mayor Bob Dixon, Barnes was living and working in Lawrence at the time of the tornado. She returned to Greensburg shortly after the disaster to help her parents sort through the rubble. She stayed for about a week but kept coming back. After several months of shuttling back and forth, she and her husband decided to move back. I don't know, it was just something that um, felt right to, to move back here and to be a part of, of the community and what was happening here. Um, wanting to, to be a part of this community's future. Barnes has a degree in art but got a job as an assistant to the then city administrator. That quickly turned into a job managing the small gift shop at the Big Well and a role planning a new museum to showcase it. Now she's back at City Hall. In the 60s, Greensburg was population was over 2,000, 50, roughly 1,500 at the time of the tornado, now approaching 900 maybe. So you're still not back from a population standpoint. And do you think you'll ever be back to that level? I don't know. I think we could. But I, I also don't think that population is the only measurement of success of a community and its strength and viability. I think that there's so many other factors that, that go into what makes a community successful. And I think bottom line, it's people, but it's not people as numbers. Mm -hmm. It's people as community and um, people participating and, and helping and, and the quality of life in the community. Fewer people makes it harder for a town to support the amenities, even some essentials that make for a good quality of life. Still, Barnes says, people in Greensburg are stepping up in lots of ways, from buying at local shops to volunteering at the movie theater, which can't afford to hire kids to work the concession stand. How tenuous is that quality of life in terms of the viability of the grocery store, the viability of the movie theater in Spearville, not too far down the road, they just lost their grocery store. Again, it comes back to people. We all have to participate and be a part of it. That yes, it, it could be fragile if all of us just quit. Uh, you know, volunteering, quit. buying local. Yeah. Right, and I think you know, in a larger community, 
the, those impacts aren't felt because there there's, are more people. And, but in a smaller community, your, your impacts can be so much greater. And so you have that opportunity um, to participate and be a part of something. Um, and yes, there, there is that um, pressure, I guess, that comes with that, that, yeah. uh, that could go away if we don't help. And so how would you say things are going right, right now? I would say things are going well. Um, we continue to work on projects, and even though you know, there's empty lots and a business park that's ready for business, um, some would see that as maybe a, f- a failure. I don't think to say that word, because it's, it's not. It's an opportunity. Well, some people would see it that way, but you don't. I think that early on, there were probably some unrealistic expectations placed upon us. Um, whether we had them internally or whether some of it came from the outside with the media and rumors. And, and then so some of those expectations that were not met um, were probably disappointing to people here in the community. But in the end, bottom line, 12 years later, we're still here and we're taking care of this place. Has everything worked perfect? No, absolutely not. There's no such thing as perfect. But when you are building an entire community over again and you have hundreds and hundreds of decisions that are being made, you're not going to get it all right. And it's not black and white. There's no, well, are they? did they do it or did they not? Um, I think we are doing it and we continue to do it. And it's an ongoing process. I think if you ever get to a point where you decide, okay, we're done, then you're dying. You have to keep making progress. What kind of pressure do you feel now that you've inherited this job and people look to you to continue the progress that's been made? Um, I feel a tremendous responsibility. Pressure, (laughs) I guess, or responsibility. But at the same time, um, I think about over the last 12 years, looking back at things that the community's accomplished and that I've seen firsthand. And now my kids are eight and nine and it's the home that they know. And for, you know, think about another 10 years down the road of what we'll be able to accomplish and, and look back on that these struggles and challenges along the way, um, we'll think, man, what was that all about? It wasn't that bad. <laughs> Aaron Barnhart was the TV critic for the Kansas City Star in 2007. He first went to Greensburg to do a story on the Discovery Channel's series. But he returned often after that to collect material for a book. He's bullish on Greensburg and takes issue with those who say the town has failed to capitalize on its celebrated comeback. One way to look at it is that it was a failure. Another way to look at it is the entire community rebuild represented an investment in the future. They embraced a vision that wasn't theirs, but which they bought into, they got excited about it. And like a lot of plans that people all over the world have, didn't quite pan out the way it was supposed to, but there's still so much that they can be proud of. Greensburg's revival story, Barnhart says, is still being written. And chapters yet to come may reveal that empty industrial park was a good investment after all. All that space represents is the future, the potential of Greensburg in the future. And if you were to build that same industrial park outside a town of 10,000, 
somewhere in northeastern Kansas, no one would say, well, that was just a foolish waste of money. Why did they build that? They would assume that at some point, maybe not this year, maybe not even next year, but eventually someone would come along and see the potential in this community and build something and hire 20, 50, 80 people. Now, it does speak, though, to a problem that every small and medium-sized town in Kansas faces, which is affordable, high-quality housing. I heard about that in every community I visited. It's a, it's a big problem. Yep. A and big... before the storm, Greensburg had quite a bit of housing, um, rental housing mostly. Mm-hmm. Not all of it was super high-quality, but the point is, is that because of it, people could live there. Uh, and, and I went to a city council meeting after the storm where a guy pleaded with the city council to let him bring a trailer in and put it on a vacant lot in Greensburg. And they said no, because we don't want to have trailers in. It wasn't part of that vision. It wasn't part of that vision. Yet I could also understand this guy. It sounded like he had been having trouble finding employment elsewhere. And if he could just figure out how to live in Greensburg. He could stay. So part of the deal is a business can come in and kick the tires and say, well, this is some nice infrastructure, um, but we're looking to hire 20 people and you haven't got housing for 20 people. I mean, it's that tight. It really is that tight, says Dennis McKinney, a farmer who represented Greensburg for years in the Kansas legislature. The biggest limiter we have right now is affordable housing. For several years, I've talked to community leader after community leader from all over Kansas, said that's their number one issue. We have dozens and dozens of people working in Kiowa County, but not living there. We have an electrician, electrical contractor in our area. He's got two employees driving 25 miles a day to get to work. Imagine how that affects what he has to pay them to come to work for them. Whereas if they could live locally, their mileage is less, all of a sudden his burden is less. The fact that Greensburg shares that housing problem with other rural communities brings us back to the question we started with. Did the greening of Greensburg matter? Is this a phoenix on the plains, or are there vultures circling it like so many other rural places? The answer, as you might expect, is mixed. Though some scars remain, Greensburg looks fresh and revitalized compared to other rural communities. It's brimming with new technology. And the people who remain there know something about themselves that folks who live elsewhere don't. They know they can be tested by hardships powerful enough to threaten their town's very existence and make it through. But in other ways, Greensburg remains at the mercy of forces beyond its control. Not meteorological forces, economic and cultural forces that are slowly sucking the life out of great swaths of the state. Scott Brown, the guy who led efforts to rebuild downtown, would like to believe that Greensburg is now less vulnerable to those forces, that it's not destined to become, quote, the ghost town with the newest buildings. I, I really would like to be more optimistic than, than what I am. We, we will probably survive uh, the town as we are now for another hundred years. I, I don't doubt that we will survive, but uh, that's not what we want to do. We want to get a little growth. We don't want to be a Wichita. We don't want to be a Hutchison. Not that those aren't nice places, but it damn it sure be a, it, it'd be a nice to be back to 1500 again. That'd be a win-win for us. And, and that's maybe within the realm of possibility. 
It gives you something to stretch for. Some towns in rural Kansas are determined to do more than just survive. Places like Dodge City, the historic cow town that for many is emblematic of the Wild West. It's got its sights set on becoming a big-time tourist destination. It's the attraction of the Old West, the mystique of what Dodge City was, that still resonates with the consumer of uh, the Gunsmoke era. Dodge City's storied history gives it a leg up on other communities, but something else does too. Something that not every Kansas community would welcome. A large and growing immigrant population working dangerous jobs in meatpacking plants. The rapidly changing face of Southwest Kansas, next time on My Fellow Kansans. My Fellow Kansans comes from the Kansas News Service, a collaboration of public radio stations KMUW in Wichita, Kansas Public Radio in Lawrence, High Plains Public Radio in Garden City, and KCUR in Kansas City. Jim McLean reported, wrote, and hosted the podcast. He also crisscrossed thousands of miles around the state to record dozens of conversations with his fellow Kansans. Scott Cannon and Suzanne Hogan edited the podcast script. Scott also edited digital stories that Jim wrote that appear at ksnewsservice.org. There are some great photographs of Kansas and Kansans there, shot primarily by Chris Neal. Ben Stanton worked as field producer, researching, interviewing, and organizing the recordings you just heard. I'm Beth Golay. I worked with Luann Stevens, Jay Schaefer, and Ben in audio production. Primary Color Music composed our theme song, and other music you heard during this season came from Free Music Archive. Jordan Kirtley designed our logo. Event planning and social media promotion came together only with the help of Grace Lotz, Michael Russo, Sarah Jane Crespo, and Angie Hayfley. This concludes Episode 5 of this six-episode season. Look for the final episode in one week. And remember, if you want to support work like this, please contribute to the public radio station in Kansas you listen to most.